Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audiblechild.com slash outnowpodcast. Over 150,000 titles to choose from for your Android, iPhone, Kindle, or MP3 player. This week on Out Now with Aaron Abe, we're talking Birdman. Wait a minute, I forgot my introduction. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... Abe! Hola! Hola! Out Now is a film podcast. Abe and I are discussing new movies weekly. We cover some various movie topics, jump into a mostly spoiler-free review, although that might change this week, and then jump back into other fun movie topics. This is episode 172. 172. That's actually pretty good. I mean, like, we're getting close to that 200 mark. And I'm very excited. Good. Should be. <laughs> um, I'm taking it easy on the whole two. Like normally, I think we'd be like, guys, 200 episodes coming up. We got coming up, crazy. But I'm just, I'm pretty, I'm pretty laid back about this one. It's like, yeah, all right, we get to 200. It's gonna be cool. I think it's gonna be actually very cool. It'll be uh, very cool, but you know, we'll, but we'll, we'll announce something. As, yeah, as it something. comes closer, I'm sure you get more and more excited. So, I, I, I do. I do. I do. <laughs> I mean, we're getting close to 175. That's not crazy, but yeah, you know. I mean, you know, that's no 200 though. Anyway, we're talking about Birdman this week. Thank you. That, that was a squawk. Yeah, th- thanks for clarifying. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I, write in what you thought Abe was doing. I don't know where, what else you were doing. <laughs> uh, we're talking about Birdman. Uh, I think, I feel, since Birdman's been out a while and it's a small enough movie where I feel like anyone listening to this podcast will probably have seen Birdman, that we might just, just go, like, go full spoilers on it when we get to our review of Birdman. There's so much to talk about. I feel like yes. there is, and I feel like it'd be better if we weren't inhibited by, you know, holding back. So I think we should... I'm going to put that out there right fine. now. Listeners that are listening to this episode should know that we're going to talk about Birdman, and we're probably going to go all into it. I don't think there's a... It's a I don't think it has surprises that ruin the film if you haven't seen it and decide to listen to this podcast anyway. But yeah, let's just say we're going to do spoilers on Birdman this week. But we got like <laughs> 20 minutes before we get to that, so let's, you know... I mean, and talked about this guy that's also with us, talking about Birdman with us this week. But yeah, here is from the Beverly Press. He's writing, directing, and starring in his own adaptation of Transcendence for the Stage. It's Jonathan Van Dyke. Hey, <laughs> welcome back. Wait, was that was that an Arsenio Hall show too? I don't even know. I would love to. Could have been Tim the Tool Man. I, I you know, I. <laughs> oh no, I killed Wilson. Back to jail for me. I mean, aren't we all just basking in in early or early nineties, late eighties television with too many cooks these days? Anyway, oh my god, too many cooks is <laughs> too many cooks. Uh, Abe, have you seen the too many cooks video? I have not. Oh my god. Oh no. You have to watch it, and not only say, not, not only just pause have to... the podcast right now. You not, got me. <laughs> not only do you have to just watch it, you have to watch all of it because it just gets because it's like nine minutes long, and that could seem unwieldy, but at the same time, it's totally worth it. This looks amazing. I just looked it up. Yeah. So let's all let's all stop, and then we'll come back after Abe's watched it. Okay, so we're back. That was great, right? Wasn't that great, Abe? Oh my gosh! Oh man, I am now a huge, huge, huge advocate for too many cooks. Great. So let's uh, <laughs> let's, let's move on. Let's get to some show notes here before we get into the main show. Uh, new commentary coming soon. I'll just say that right now, and I'll say that um, our friend of the show, Maxwell Haddad, he is definitely going to be involved in that pot in that commentary podcast track. So uh, stay tuned. Um, 
Let's see. iTunes reviews ratings, good to get those. Helps out our show, helps other people find our show. And Abe, we actually got another iTunes review. <laughs> this I'm one this is amazing. This one this is, is amazing. This one is from MM Ness. MM Ness. Uh, uh, mm, MM Nessel. I think, actually. Nestle. Um, it says, love you guys so much. Awesome insights about movies. Plus, it seems like you're always having a blast. I look like such a dupe is laughing out loud on, on the subway when I listen to you. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much for that. That's another five-star rating, but you don't have to give us five stars. It's just happy to get some kind of notice because, again, so it helps us. The question is, is it the train, like D-A, or is it the train? He said subway, so it's neither. Oh, or the subway. (laughs) (laughs) Good one. Um, (laughs) I don't know. You clarify, Ness. But yeah, uh, that was that was great. And speaking of great, uh, we've had a lot of great response to our Interstellar show uh, from last week uh, with uh, Scott Friendless show, Scott Mendelson and Ali Matu. And uh, I just like to say thank you guys for you know enjoying our conversation. I thought Abe and I and our guests had a a very good time talking about the film and going in depth on it. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was a lot of fun. And I'm glad it's, you know, being received as such. I mean, what's great about the movie too, is that again, even the national, the, the nation is divided on interstellar. So I'm glad that we were able to have different voices on as well. That yeah, can provide another side instead of just being all sunshine and rainbows. At the same time, it's just nice to, uh, be able to talk about something uh, in general. Yeah. Um, so moving on, Let's uh let's get into the show, Abe. Let's get into know everybody. Where each week we ask each other a few questions to try and set the tone for the podcast. I better get to know no. everybody. Wasn't uh, that? Oh, that was pretty good. Yeah. So, Abe, why don't you start this one off? Okay. If you guys could live the life of a superhero, not Superman or not Batman, who would it be and why? So, if we could be any superhero except Batman or Superman? Because you know they've got some. You know of them. You know how cool they can be and whatever else. Um, but I'd be curious if, if you chose something like Puck from who's Puck? From, he's from the uh, the Canadian uh, the original group that Wolverine was part of. Who, who are they? He's not. Oh, he's not a superhero, but he's like a mutant. Anyway, um, I mean, he does stuff. Well, not him. Yes, <laughs> not him. <laughs> that's, that's my answer so far. Uh, I mean, you haven't limited to the too much if I can't be a Batman. So I'd just be like, more... I know that Batman's your favorite. Yeah, but I could be like an Avenger. They seem to be getting things going it's, pretty well. Like, I feel like this is a tough question because you're like, live their life. None of these superheroes have like that great of a life. They have to like save the world and stuff. <laughs> I don't know. I think a lot of them get by pretty well. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. I'd be Kitty Pride. Here we go. Nice. I mean, I just, I just be Nightcrawler, my favorite X Men. <laughs> that <laughs> he does, he seems like he lives a pretty cool life. Yeah, that's not a bad choice. Yeah. I mean, like he's aer, 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 acrobatic. Thank you, Abe. We got that, Abe. Who would you be? I think that I'd have to be uh, Aquaman. Okay, so, Con- I'll just, I'll be, so, you're, so you don't, you don't have an answer. I got it. Yeah. Okay, conquer my fear of the uh, the unknown. Okay. The depths below. Are you sure you just don't want Vinny Chase's life, and that's what you're saying? <laughs> you think there's like, are there issues of people should write in because I don't know Aquaman comics. Are there issues of Aquaman where he like actually explores deep underwater and like finds things? He like he fights giant squids. He doesn't have to fight it. He could like befriend the. Oh, things. he could. He could also use like his telepathic power should be like, hey, squid, it's me, your friend. There could be more than squid though. There could be you know, cra- like I mean, Godzilla's under there. No, we all, he's, we all he's learned in that. slumber. Yeah, but he's still, he's still down there. Trouble arises. Yeah, but he's still down there. 
Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the kaiju are down there. They're in the rift. That's different. And they closed it. Get it straight, Abe. <laughs> in the future, they closed it. They haven't closed it yet. But it, okay, fine. Yeah. Right. Moving on. <laughs> what type of instrument noise would you want to follow you around town? Honestly, that drum set was actually really cool. Yeah. <laughs> Like, dude, the singular, I thought it was multiple pieces or multiple guys, and it was just one dude. I, that was actually really cool. It's funny, I've been hearing mixed uh, reactions to the score. I really like the score. I, I have it. I, 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 like, I like listening to the drums just randomly in the car when I'm driving around. It's fun. But you like the drums. John, what do you think? Uh, let's go jazz flute. Jazz flute? Jazz yep. flutes, as they call it? <laughs> the, the jazz flutes? Yeah, might as well get... You know, yes. I might, get, might as well get some 70s funk in my life while I walk around. And nothing's funkier than a jazz flute. That's what they say. Uh, that's what Ron Burgundy believes. There you go. All right. <laughs> he carries around all the time with him. Very cool. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Hey, Aqualung. Okay, moving on. That was uh, that was what we call no, no everybody. everybody. So, uh, okay, let's move on now. Let's get down to quickies. Yep. Each week now we have one main movie that we can talk about, but we always have other movies that we see during the week that we have to go to the cookies. Yeah. I nailed it. I nailed it. That was pretty <laughs> good. That was pretty good. Abe, have you seen any other movies this week? I haven't. I made a turkey yesterday, and that took up a lot of my time. You made a turkey? I did. I had Friendsgiving yesterday. Ah, okay. Yeah. It was in a dry run, because I'm hosting Thanksgiving for some family in the next couple weeks. Don't you live in, like, a shoebox? I do live in a shoebox, especially in the Bay, and the shoebox costs, like, a million dollars a month. All right, well, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Aaron says I live in a shoebox because I'm, I'm a mouse. You've been you've been listening to a mouse all this time? John, have you seen any other movies this week? Uh, I guess I saw A Million Ways to Die in the West on video. That's That's something I saw this week. And I would say... Thumbs down. <laughs> yeah, that was, that's. I, I was not expecting I, a thumbs up. I was. I wasn't expecting such a dramatic reading, but. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, I was saying that I wanted to like it, but yeah, uh, that's how I that's felt. The reason I, I didn't like see it in theaters, and those reasons appear to be properly founded. <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to like it. It had a had a novel idea. Um, which is actually, and I'm going to get, I have a few here that I've seen this week, and I don't really want to limit it to just one, because why not? Um, but you mentioned A Million Ways to Die in the West, and I mentioned that in my review for The Homesman, the Tommy Lee Jones Western that's come out, because oh, yeah. um, A Million Ways to Die in the West, I like. I do like the premise of the idea of the West is like was a terrible time to live in and playing off of that, and The Homesman seems like a representation of that, because it's very grim and dark stuff. Um, it has It's Tommy Lee Jones and Hilary Swank playing... Well, Jones is like a is like a claim jumper. Swank is this kind of older single lady living in the West alone, and um, she goes on this mission to take three women that have gone crazy to a farm and or to like a camp in Iowa to kind of help them get better. And she finds Jones along the way, and they kind of team up to do this mission. And there's a lot of really grim stuff that happens in this movie, which is kind of awful, but at the same time it has a lot of dark humor in it, and I just felt it was kind of mixed overall. That said, I really think Hilary Swank is very good in this film. Mm. So it's like, that's an aspect of praise, and it's a, I mean, you get a western these days, it's probably going to look good, and it does. It looks very, it's a very good looking film. Uh, but overall it's pretty mixed on the Holmesman. Um, I would say the same about Foxcatcher, which I'm also going to bring up. Uh, Foxcatcher. Steve Carell, Channing Tatum, and Mark Ruffalo, all of them are giving maybe career best performances. Maybe not Ruffalo, because Ruffalo I think is always pretty great in movies, but um, Overall, 
while I, I recognize so many good things about the film, and I recognize that the movie has very strong reviews and will likely be nominated for a lot of things, I wasn't a big fan of it. I didn't, it didn't do much for me. That's just kind of, I mean, I, I almost had no reaction to it in terms of like how to take it in besides like, oh, well, that things happen and that's kind of sad. But like, yeah. sure, it's well acted, it's well made, it's just it didn't do much for me. That's kind of the overall takeaway. Um, that did do a lot for me though. Rosewater. This is uh, John Stewart. Ah, yeah. Written um, and directed. Written and uh, adapted and directed by John Stewart, starring Gael Garcia Bernal. Gael Garcia Bernal. Gael. Gael Garcia. Gael. I don't know. I like him. No quite a bit. He's a very strong actor, and the movie is quite strong. I um, I enjoyed. Uh, Stewart had some kind of flair behind the camera that I was enjoying. The film in general is well acted and presents a story that can be frustrating to watch based on what this event is that takes place. It's about this this uh, reporter who who's gone to Iran and he gets imprisoned based on basically bearing witness to something, and um, he's put into kind of solitary confinement. That's like the majority of the movie. Uh, the other but, thing I'd like to add about that is, yeah. just, um, they he was in, he was arrested because he shot a video for the Daily Show, and the people who watched it were like, "Oh, you were talking to an American spy who was played by Jason Jones," and it's just like, "Why are you talking to this U.S. spy?" It's like. No, 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 no. It's it's just a comedy show, and they they didn't understand that, so he was in prison for that. Was, I mean, it's not entirely for that reason. Right. It, it, There's it, more it, things. It goes, yeah, and it, and but, it goes uh, into that. I found that that was like a that was a very interesting catalyst for what happens uh, to this person. But yeah, anyway, it I like the film quite a bit. It's quite strong. Um, I should go seek it out. Yeah, I I I think it's worth checking out. Um, I lastly to wrap up quickies. I saw Dumb and Dumber two. <laughs> I don't end, have much end of segment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there were a couple laughs, um, which, you know, for a 105-minute movie, it could stand to use a little more, I would say. So, <laughs> okay. there you go. All right. Um, so, yeah, that was out of quickies. Yeah. Let's move on. John, have you been looking forward to Dumb and Dumber 2? Has that been, like, on your list of, like, I can't wait, need to see it? Uh, I mean, it was, like, probably, like, five months ago, but I think it became pretty apparent that it was not going to be worth seeing in theaters, at least. I do like the Dumb and Dumber TV show, The Newsroom. That's a fun one. Hey, oh. <laughs> um, Aaron Sorkin. Boom. Moving on, let's get to Trailer Talk, uh, where we talk about one of the newest movie trailers of the week and when it's coming out and what have you. And this week we're discussing The Gambler. This is the yeah. film starring Mark Wahlberg, out-of-action-guy role for A Nice Change of Pace, uh, directed by Rupert Wyatt, who directed Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and written by William Monaghan, who wrote, um, among other things, adapted screenplay for The Departed. Um, obviously, uh, other films like, uh, what was it? Um, what was that one movie? Uh, Kingdom of Heaven. That, ah, one of my favorite like Scott movies, Kingdom of Heaven. There's a but yeah, The Departed's the most notable one because, of course, Mark Wahlberg was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in The Departed. Remember that time in history when Mark Wahlberg was the only person to get an acting nomination for The Departed? That's a fun time, wasn't it? The Departed? <laughs> that's, yeah. a, that's a funny time in history, isn't it? You sure Leo didn't get a nomination? No. <laughs> Neither did Matt Damon. Both very good at The Departed. Not as good as Mark Wahlberg, though. Apparently, apparently, apparently not. Yeah, I mean, like that that guy, the guy from Boston who swears a lot, got nominated for a role where he plays Mark. some guy from Boston that swears a lot. Imagine that. I mean, I don't know. Maybe they like they enjoyed his Wahlburgers. You know, I all that said, I like Wahlberg. I think he's fine in that movie. But that's like when you look back and it's like The Departed. Who got active nominations? Mark Wahlberg. All right, okay. 
Anyway, The Gambler, which actually looks pretty good. Um, I'll read the INDB description. It says a, liter- a literature college professor and a high-stakes gambler runs a- afoul of a loan shark and his bodyguard-like gangsters while he has an affair with one of his students. Yeah, lot to unpack there, but yeah, it stars Mark Wahlberg. It also has Jessica Lange and Brie Larson, and um, and John Goodman, very and bald. Omar from The Wire. And Michael K. Williams, yes. Yeah. Um, and with all that said, let's start with John. What do you think of the trailer for The Gambler? Um, I mean, it was a solid trailer. It's interesting to see Jessica Lange in like a movie because I'm just so used to her in American Horror Story. Yeah. Uh, and she looks like she's gonna have a lot of fun with that part. Uh, I don't know. It, it looks like. Maybe a more extreme rounders. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's a good point. Uh, hard to get a grasp on it. Um, I uh, worship Brie Larson, so uh, I, I will probably see it at some point. It looks looks like a solid, a solid little kind of one of those movies that doesn't happen that much anymore. Where it's it's kind of, I think it'll be uh, one of the main movies in the weekend it opens, but things don't blow up in it <laughs> <laughs> that we know of yet. Abe, let me ask you before I ask you your thoughts on the trailer. You should know that your least favorite character from the Place Beyond the Pines is in this movie. Okay, go. Are you serious? Yes. I didn't see him in the trailer. Okay, don't worry about it. Go. All right. I uh, I thought the movie or I thought the trailer looked pretty solid as well. I myself am not a huge fan of gambling movies, not because of the morality or whatever, but because I don't really find the uh, I don't understand it as much as I should or as I, as I could. So I don't really know what the tensions are all about like oh this guy's got these set of cards and i is this tense maybe i don't know what uh what to make of the rest of it but anyway john goodman looks amazing in here um although he he's pretty good in a lot of his movies and again omar from the wire is in here but i think it'd be amazing if the opening shot of this movie after all the credit sequences is just mark Wahlberg in his lecture hall just talking about like i don't know john Frost or Robert Frost or something, and just and then he goes out. So you want to see him teach? We, I think it'd be really funny. <laughs> be like, so by the way, the really the high level concepts of this piece of literature in the 18th century was just about the the Moors and how they descended upon England. It seems then, it seems like you want like a like an Indiana Jones esque opening sequence where like he does some intense gambling and then it's followed by him back in like his lecture hall teaching. Well, it'd be the lecture hall first and then the intense gambling later, and I'd just be like, oh, that's an interesting. That was a good point there, Professor Mark Wahlberg. Anyway, it looks pretty solid. Um. <laughs> um, I agree. I think the movie looks fine. Um, I like I as much as I like Mark Wahlberg and like seeing him in kind of you know action guy role. I do tend to find him funnier when or you know a, I find him more entertaining when he is in a different mode than that. I think when he plays kind of comedic earnest, that's when he's at his best, which is why something like Boogie Nights works really well. Um, and I, I like seeing more of that side of Wahlberg. So this is a nice change in pace. And, I mean, it's a it's a bit different direction from Rise of the Planet of the Apes from director Rupert Wyatt. But, you know, I look forward to seeing what he has to do next. So, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things there that I look forward to. And, yeah, I also am a big fan of Brie Larson from Short Term 12, among other things. And, yeah, it is nice to see Jessica Lange back on the big screen again as well. So look forward to this movie. I, I think it looks, I don't know if any different than you know other kind of dramas of this nature could be but at the same time it's it's it looks different for the people involved in it i guess so i'm fairly excited about it um so yeah the gambler opens i believe in limited release on december 19th and then kind of spreads wider uh, it seems like Wahlberg like really tries to pull for those like come on guys we can get like a small oscar campaign going for this movie <laughs> like last year of lone survivor like come on we'll have a one-week screening of lone survival in december 
Be good. Don't, don't let everybody else see it. Be great. I can see that you and Abe chose this 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 trailer just so you could both do your own for, for the for the <laughs> Mark Wahlberg Bostonian accent, which we're both not. We're we're Aaron's more decent than I am. <laughs> Write in your thoughts on our Mark Wahlberg impressions at outnowpodcast at gmail dot com. Aaron's got a great way of describing the way that Mark Wahlberg talks. He's always I, out of breath. Yeah, like exactly. Always out of breath. It's like he always just came back from the gym. <laughs> I mean, Sandberg, Andy Sandberg did a good job of him in the, the zoo skits always. Yeah, say hi to your mother for me. <laughs> <laughs> now he does it weekly. That's a, I like Brooklyn Nine-Nine a Brooklyn, lot. Brooklyn nine is like, it's a very good show. One of my favorite comedies yeah. on TV right now. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, let's move on. Now. That was the trailer for The Gambler Talk. Uh, again, December 19th, that comes out, and you know the trailer's online, so you can check it out. There's two trailers. Did you guys watch the Green Band one or the Red Band trailer? I watched the Green Band one. I don't know. Well, there's a lot of f there's a lot of f bombs in the in the red band trailer. <laughs> yeah, I, must, uh, I don't know. I didn't. Okay, I don't well, think any, I don't think people are letting the language fly in the one I watched. So yeah, I guess. that's that's probably the regular one. There is a red band one which I also saw, and it it has a it's a neat trailer. It's cut together similar to something like if anyone remembers a serious man that Cohen Brothers film. It has this kind of repetitive quality to it that I enjoyed quite a bit. But regardless, yeah, that's the trailer for the gambler. Let's move on now. What time is it, guys? It's, I think it's time to get to our full review. Let's get to our, our main review for Birdman. We had it all. You were a movie star, remember? Who was this guy? He used to be Birdman. I like that poster. You wrote this adaptation? I did, yeah. And you're directing and starring in your I, adaptation. That's yeah. ambitious. Are you afraid people will say you're doing this play to battle the impression that you're a washed-up comic strip character? Absolutely not. That's why 20 years ago I said no to Birdman 4. Bold the mass off! You do bold the mass Now you're about to destroy what's left of your career. All right, so that should have been some of the trailer for Birdman. This is the latest and happiest film yet from director Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu. It concerns a washed-up actor, Regan Thompson, played by Michael Keaton, who once donned the cape of a superhero in films, only to now work on reclaiming his glory by way of a play he has adapted, directed, and will star in. This will be quite the challenge, as Regan must overcome his own ego, family troubles, and various others involved in the play, including theater star Mike Shiner, played by Edward Norton, and Regan's own daughter, played by Emma Stone. But nothing has ever been simple for Birdman. <laughs> John, what did you think of the film Birdman? Uh, I think I've had some, I actually have some distance from it now, and I, I do think it's still one of the better movies of the year. Um, I think overall I, I, I would highly recommend going to see this movie. And uh, I think... It's for many different reasons, but it's just one of the more unique movies you will see this year, uh, based on a lot of different things. But, but more than anything, it's the highly stylized manner of which it's presented, which, um, for those who don't know, it's kind of presented in a one continuous shot for the entire movie. Uh, and it's, it gives off a really awesome effect of like kind of, uh, like a live, almost being on stage yourself kind of effect because you're just you're you're like kind of following everybody everywhere, and it's like there's no time to really breathe or anything like that, and that it's propelled by a soundtrack that we've all alluded to here, uh, that's mostly drums, which is which is a really cool thing too. Um, and then finally, it's got some of the better performances you'll see this year from from michael keaton but uh i would say i would go farther and say ed norton's kind of the the main catalyst or the best part of this movie maybe even for me 
Uh, it does drag, I think, a little bit for me, which is why I can't quite go like 10 out of 10. It's maybe probably more like an 8 out of 10 for me. Because uh, I, I do think kind of in the latter stages of the movie, uh, I, I did kind of, it started to lose its momentum a little bit. But it's just such a unique and and and, and really riveting movie experience, something kind of different that the cinema is giving out this year that this is a movie uh, people need to go see. Abraham? I think there's a lot that you can take away from this movie, and that's, that's one of the best things about it is um, the discussion that you have afterward. And it, it reminds me of Interstellar in that way, in that capacity, even though I saw this before Interstellar. But there's there's so much that you can take away from this because there's a lot of like metaphors and similes, and there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of thematic things that you think about, and or at least I did, and I thought that, that was one of the best things. Is the themes that I'm thinking about are just like you know your existence and how much you mean to to yourself or to other people and what drives you. Um, John's right in terms of the camera work, and I thought that that was really neat, just because there's you sort of get the the perspective of that character that you're following for that particular moment. I think all of the actors are great in here. That Galmanakis is really good as a lawyer and. Uh, one of Michael Keaton's best friends. Michael Keaton is amazing in this movie. Um, there's been a lot of allusion to like, his Batman days and whatever else. And yes, those are apt, but at the same time, I think that there's also more to this complex or this complex character. Um, Edward Norton is very good in here too. The score is fantastic. I think that this movie is very, very good, and there was a lot to think about. So I'm glad that we're able to probably talk a little bit more in depth about some of the spoilers. Yeah, I should remind people that we will be um, going into spoilers um, at some points. I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going <laughs> to, let's just say, you know, everything's off here. It's not a matter of like, let's talk about this, then that. But, you know, we'll be going in as far as we want to. Um, as far as my thoughts on the film go, I would go that extra, I would go to the 10 out of 10 place. I do think this is among the best films of the year in this kind of rotating circle I have of kind of four movies at this point before as long as nothing else enters into that frame. Who knows? Maybe the final Hobbit will be that good. I doubt it. Um, but, um, <laughs> small gets his day. Um, uh, but no, I, I, I say that because I don't know what the bad thing is in this film. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to point out as the things like, well, that could have been, but I don't have that issue. Um, I'm happy to talk about these things, but at the same time, from where I sit, I just I feel everything about this movie is just so wonderfully well accomplished. I think the acting's terrific for everybody all around. Even if someone like Amy Ryan, whose part is you know significantly smaller than someone like Edward Norton in this film, I think they all do tremendous work with what they are given. Um, Michael Keaton, obviously, I mean everyone that talks about Michael Keaton is pretty much pretty much a Michael Keaton fan. Like no one really. He may not, you know, always come up in the conversation, but at the same time, he's kind of the actor who's like, why isn't he doing more? We all like Michael Keaton. And I, <laughs> I, I, I am so happy that this movie affords him the opportunity to do that. And yes, obviously, he played Batman, and the illusion goes by nobody uh, in, in concerns of him playing a character like this, a supposed washed-up actor who once was a superhero and is coming back in a different way. I wouldn't say Michael Keaton was a washed-up actor because he really wasn't. He's been acting pretty he's been consistently. I mean, yeah, he's, he's never stopped working, and he's he's one of the and like you look at his career, and yes, he hasn't been like leading man necessarily in like a while, but he also he hasn't like you don't see him starring like direct-to-video movies like you don't see those on the shelf at all, which I think is something to <laughs> be good credit to. Like you don't see him like in these like random movies like Michael Keaton is or whatever. Like yeah. he's he's continued doing stuff just on you know, you know much lower recently... key. Yeah. You know who I recently saw doing that? Well, again, it's not a bad thing because people are working and you're getting paid. 
But Danny Glover, I yeah, he does. Uh, yeah. I saw a lot of like direct to DVD things. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that. Mm. And regard, I mean, this is this is a different thing, but it comes down to people want to work. <laughs> like it doesn't matter. It's like uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, uh, anyway, back to this movie. Yeah, the direction, fantastic. I love. I didn't realize like going into this movie for the first. I saw. I've seen it twice now, but the first time I saw this film, I I realized there would be a lot of unbroken takes, but I didn't realize the movie was basically attempting to be one large unbroken shot. And like that's not obviously it's not that. Like obviously there are edits. They're very clever. It's very well hidden. And how it's accomplished, and and the movie isn't like one take. Like there are takes in the film. Yeah. Aside, uh, putting aside the fact that there are you know hidden edits all over it, it's, it does have like more than one shot going on um, between like hyperlapse stuff and kind of zoom ins on TV screens and stuff like that. But regardless, it's very impressive to be able to see something like that. Um, and I mean, between the editing and the cinematography by Emmanuel Lubezki, who won the Oscar last year for Gravity, I mean, it's um, a damn good. A technical accomplishment that goes well with this kind of story that's being presented, and and as Abe said, there's a lot of things to talk about in regarding the themes and regarding the kind of the the, uh, the way it presents a character who's coming back from something and and, and kind of finding his place in society. There's just a lot of really great stuff about it that I really enjoy. And one of the best things that I think that you had uh, alluded to is just that the camera work. I was actually paying more attention to it because I, I noticed it very heavy on, but then at a certain point I was trying to find out where the cut was, and I was like, oh, okay, well, I think there's a cut there, and I stopped paying so much attention to it. So uh, it does it really grow throughout the movie, John? Like, they, they uh, try and play that throughout the entire movie? Because I think I stopped, like, right when he uh, he left, like, the theater or something. I don't I think there's ever, yeah, I don't think there's ever, a, like, a, a black screen, this is in. Like, I think we almost always, we might go through a dark hallway and kind of enter into a new world, but I, it's pretty continuous otherwise. Well, yeah, they're, they're invisible cuts. Like, it, uh, right. it, it, yeah. it's not, tr- it's not, you know... They're gonna, there, but it's not trying to present like, look how clever we are. I mean, it, okay, it kind no, of, but it's, no. it's not making it obvious either. It's just kind of. I don't of, remember a movie that's ever like really done what it does perspective-wise for the camera. Like it, it it's really interesting because you are just kind of like it's like you're kind of hurrying around with everybody, kind of like trying to keep up with them. Uh, and there's some really just cool effects where you know you might like come out and like all of a sudden you see the the crowd or they're on stage and they're kind of far away or like there's just some really interesting perspective things i think that he works with um that 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 kind of just everything kind of folds in on itself thematically whether it be that camera style uh or the live nature of it playing off of the live nature of theater and, and all those kind of things um, I mean, the most famous example of kind of a movie that attempts to be one giant take is, Hitch- is Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, which just has obvious cuts in there, but is designed to be a movie that plays out in real time. And even this, and this movie doesn't even play out in real time. To be thinking to when you put it, I mean, it's it's essentially capturing like several weeks, even a month it of is. time, because yeah. it's, it's very stylish, as you mentioned, John. It's very stylized in its presentation, where you can jump from like having a character talk about somebody joining the, the stage to having the next scene be that person having already arrived, not seeing the phone call that took place and the negotiation or whatever. It just moves like, okay, here we are. It's the next day within the same take. It's stuff like that that just makes it such a, I mean, beyond what's going on in terms of like the story, it's just such an intriguing movie to watch and entertaining for those reasons. No, it's definitely a movie that I would look forward to seeing a second time because there is almost so much going on. It's not just like a visually cool movie. 
Um, we haven't even know we're kind of starting there. It really is the characters and the performances. You could you could just you could take away all the stylized parts of this and have like somebody try to direct it as boring as possible, and it'd still probably be a really good movie strictly because of uh, of the actors who are in it. I mean, I don't know if you can name me a better duo in a scene this year than when ed norton and michael keaton are playing off each other in this movie it's yeah. certainly like it gives you that impression like if i had to you know i could probably think about something and maybe come up with an answer but yeah i mean just offhand just kind of the intensity of them acting not even just because they you know if they're antagon- antagonistic to each other or not just kind of the the energy that you get between them is so strong and it's so well accomplished and it helps that you know the movie has a certain style where it's unflinching as it presents something to you but it is really well handled at that same time yeah and the movie also has like this this frantic pace to it too to some degree um there are some quiet moments which aaron you talked about with amy ryan who's very lovely in this movie um she kind of brings everything kind of down and back to your gravitational pull feet i, don't I mean know. yeah she's featured in kind of the least stylized sequence she and even like emma stone um it's actually Emma Stone and Edward Norton scenes together. I think those are they're very much grounded in her sense of reality that Michael Keaton stuff isn't. And what's great about those scenes and um, can we do we just move into spoiler or just or do go, we just talk openly about it? Yeah, yeah. All right. So there's some great scenes with Emma Stone and and Ed Norton and also um, Liam Schreiber's wife, who Naomi Watts. Naomi Watts. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you you're yeah. I'm like i know i know who she is but i can't remember her name and that's the only way i can describe her um there's some great scenes between them and just the way that they are comedic but at the same time they, they emote so much but because uh, again the theme that i kind of heard of a lot was just uh your relevance in life and you know how do you know when you make it in hollywood or on the big on the big stage one of the best things is when Emma Stone is asking these truth or dare questions to Edward Norton, and he's like, you know, truth, and it's like, oh, okay, well, what would you do if you could do anything with me? He's like, it starts out kind of funny because he says, like, I'd gouge out your eyeballs, <laughs> and then I'd put them into my head and walk around the city with your perspective. And it's kind of just this very huge tonal shift because he's he's kind of an asshole. Uh, in the entire movie like his character is an asshole if if you wanted to say i mean you talk about playing on somebody's real life persona yeah uh, uh, with michael keaton it's the same thing with ed norton he's a difficult actor who he has a layup productions he's (laughs) he's known for being an actor that kind of wants to do things his way and the movie kind of it's it it doesn't seem like it's um hiding the fact that it it understands that casting Norton in a role like this obviously echoes things that people might think about him in real life and that's right. it's it's that kind of subversive stuff that it helps them that gives the movie like another sort of meta edge yeah uh, the the meta edge was also amazing um but just to finish up that thought so yeah, uh, yeah. uh Naomi Watson also has a, a moment where she kind of breaks down she's like dude I I wanted to make it I I just want somebody to tell me that I made it and it's really weird because she herself has already acknowledged that She's here on the stage. She wanted to do Broadway, and now she's here on Broadway, but nobody has told her that. And it's always like this, this you know, looking for authentication or authentic, authentication, authenticity, authenticity, or an acknowledgement from other people. Like you're wanting people to acknowledge you and say like, yes, you made it. And it's really kind of a, a I wonder if it's something that you know these guys, all these actors have really hit at some point, which is like. I want somebody to say that I did really well in this past movie that I made or, you know, now I've arrived and I want people to acknowledge that. Not in terms of 
like fame and glory, but just like, hey, I, I worked really hard for this, and I, I want people to like the work that I do. Which is, um, it's part of why I really like the casting in this movie. I think the casting's very key here, where you have, that none of the actors feel like they're playing similar roles to each other. Like, say, uh, Andrea Riseborough, who plays the other co-star in Keaton's play, who also has a relationship with Keaton's character. Mm-hmm. She maybe, with Amy Ryan, has maybe the least showy role to go into, but she does just enough to really kind of strengthen Keaton's character and provide her own perspective on things going on in this play. And it's not the one that will nearly get any sort of acclaim compared to the other actors in this film, namely uh, Norton and Keaton. But it's just, or in Stone for that matter, because um, they just they have a lot more to do. But at the same time, it's the kind of thing that it helps hold this thing together. It helps add to this this thing as a whole. Even something like Merritt Weaver's role as kind of like the sage hand assistant person. Like there's just people yeah. like that that pop up and they're just really effective. What's funny about this is I think when I, before I saw this, I thought the magical realism was going to be a big important part of this movie to me, and 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 actually all these other things we've talked about are like ranked way ahead of that for me. Like I'm usually a big in the tank person for some of that, and I think that that still worked in this movie. But uh, it's kind of funny to me that 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 there are just so many parts to pull out of this movie that you can complement. Uh, you know, I mean, most movies are like there was a good performance in that movie, or there was some interesting directing in that. And instead, this one kind of just has it all, uh, and and you you kind of bury some of these things that would be a big deal in another movie, like <laughs> you know, Michael Keaton's got an alter ego that's like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on the side here, kind of what's happening, <laughs> and it's like uh, it doesn't it, you know it, it doesn't even register as a top like five cool thing in the movie for me. <laughs> it's funny, yeah, because we haven't really brought that up. Yeah, Michael Keaton does have this kind of a Birdman. Um, you know, kind of devil on his shoulder following him, telling him things that he kind of deals with so he can kind of have an open inner monologue happening. And that also leads to him being able to, from his perspective, like kind of within his mind, which the movie kind of shifts in and out of, we can see him doing fantastical things, having kind of telekinetic powers where he can move things around and fly. But at the same time, the movie, it's not presenting that as truth because it's showing us that there's very rational ways to explain how things happen in the film like yeah. uh, namely like a flying sequence you get him zooming around the city and you and it's this lovely shot of him kind of having this this glint in his eye of wonder and, as he's doing and I think this. that's like the only time where you hear music other than the drums there no, there's there's times throughout the film that you hear some classical score and whatnot but uh at the same yes but it is a very it very much it drops that completely you're right Abe, to right. kind of single out the idea that you can exactly hear yeah, score, yeah yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's kind of like it, the score cues also mm-hmm. something in your mind that says, hey, this is completely different. And this is also maybe something that he's really relaxed about. But at the end of all that, I mean, you get the shot of the taxi cab <laughs> yes. and that he's, you know, clearly he took a taxi to the, to the stage. <laughs> like it, 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 It's not it's not cheating, except mm-hmm. for the end. And I'm not saying the end. It's I'm not saying cheating is the right word, but it's not. It's not going without explanation to get into these various aspects, except for the end, where it leaves you with this ambiguous note. We can get to that later on, I think, because I do yeah. think there's a lot to talk about there as well. There is, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. a couple other things. It, one of them is the technical aspects of it. And what I liked about it is that it did play on camera work, but it also played on the theater versus the outside world. And the theater is very claustrophobic. It's very – there's a lot of – there's actually a lot of space in there, which the camera does very well. But it's almost like Michael Keaton is – uh, I guess you could say that it's an analogy for his uh, his life, which is like whenever he's like stuck in here in this theater, he just he's he's frustrated. He's 
uh, angry and he's quickly upset. And then when he leaves and just explores the city, he's Birdman again. He's free. He's very. It's very open. It's an open world. And I thought that was a very interesting play because it's also very dark in the uh, the theater for uh, I'm sure for mood purposes. Um, so I like that about it. They they take a lot of care in that. And the other thing is the meta thing that you're talking about, which I loved because there's a scene where uh, they're they're rehearsing. This is like one of the earlier shows. And Edward Norton's like, dude, can you use like a real gun? Because I'm not even scared. And later in the movie, you are aware of a real gun, and there's real tension. And I was like, what is gonna happen here? I'm it's funny really how you, scared. You absolutely know it's real too. Like you, you, it does it. It it's great with that visual storytelling where it doesn't like. Yeah. It's again where it, like it's condensing time. It doesn't show him like going out to find a gunner. It's just like there it is. <laughs> yeah. And you know that it's real because he he looks at the magazine and there's like bullets in there. You're like. Damn it! What's gonna happen? I'm really scared. And there's, it's beautiful because there's so much tension in that in one of the the later scenes, and that's exactly what they were talking about earlier. It's like you as an audience member are watching this, and you kind of feel really nervous for Ed Norton because uh, you're not sure what's gonna happen to him because there's so much animosity between the two. You know, <laughs> I was really on the edge of my seat. Uh, as far as themes go, too, it's kind of interesting with the. Uh, it kind of takes a, a swing at what what we're doing here, where it, it talks about the value of criticism and uh, and especially in a more outlandish way, the value of uh, uh, or the power wielded by by maybe said critics, uh, especially in Broadway. Um, mm, yeah, even I mean, there's a, there's a ton of those we haven't even got to. Just kind of the satirical element involving. Hollywood versus theater, the way social media reacts to things, just like all that stuff. Yeah, but yeah, go on, John. Sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna say. Uh, I mean, it, that's probably one of the more broadly drawn caricatures is the the, the film critic, or not the film critic, the, the theater the critic, theater critic uh, in the New York Times. It's kind of just interesting the way she plays off of Ed Norton's character, and and they get back into that authenticity where. You know, she's like, aren't you ever worried that uh, I'm going to give you a bad review? And Ed Norton, of course, is like, <laughs> will I ever do that? You know? Yeah, it's like, will I ever give you a bad performance? It's like, oh, <laughs> you guys, just go and get a room and get it over with. Um, <laughs> I want to I get back to Ed Norton again because I do think there's stuff to talk about with him as well in regards to how he plays his performance. But in, as far as the kind of the theater critic goes and even just kind of the – the comments it's making about the various forms of criticism and even kind of uh, like big Hollywood movies versus the theater and the, the rawness and realness yeah, and that kind of thing. Right. I think it's fascinating and I think it's very entertaining to watch. And yeah, it is a broadly sketched character to have this theater critic out there saying things that she says and the way that she says it, especially towards Michael Keaton, which is, it's 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 kind of heartbreaking because it's happening to him who you're hopefully trying to root for at that point but at the same time it's like you can see where she's coming from as far as kind of like well this actor couldn't make it in the big leagues and now he's trying to do this other thing and he's taking up space and it's not like it's not as if and i feel like there's it get it can get lost in the translation but i don't think it's necessarily like it's not a film that's preaching to you that theater's good and movies bad, or vice versa. It's commenting on those things. It's making a point that these are things that happen, and people have certain opinions that go either way. So when it presents you, it's like, ah, oh, he's in a cape. They got him in a cape too. Like it's indict. It's like he's making this indictment about superhero films. It's not as if Alejandro Inarritu is against superhero films. It's just like here's the thing. And then there's the other side. It's like, well, look how terrible theaters actors are. So I guess the movie's against theater. Like it's not. T- it's it's not taking some stance against things. It's just presenting these ideas, and I like that. I, it makes 
it, it provides you with a lot to kind of look at in terms of how people can view certain things and maybe there's considerations you might not have had before. Maybe you didn't, maybe you didn't know there's this raging war going on between yeah. theater. It's just a lot of fun stuff. The other thing that, that it pitted uh, you against is just the, um, the outsider's perspective versus the, the actor slash, you know, stage actor and whatever uh-huh. else. And all the hard work that you do, because there's this great scene where uh, the actual, the entire movie is it too. But there's a scene where Michael Keaton is talking to her at the end. And he's like, dude, you realize how hard it is for me to emote like all this stuff, and all you have to do is just write something in your stupid pen, like away in your room, and you ruin everything. And you you do see all the hard work that Michael Keaton's doing to try and get this off the ground, to really do it. And he's kind of working on the shoestring budget, trying to take out a mortgage on his second house. Um, and Zach Galifianakis is going crazy because he's like, dude, this is not going to work. We can't pay this guy all this money. And and then you're right because at the end of it, people like. Uh, movie critics and and you know uh, theater critics, they can just say something like, "Yeah, Transcendence wasn't very good," and then <laughs> just <laughs> and then it kind of just public goes, reception. I mean, one person goes can have to a hell tweet, in a handbasket. One person can write some tweet, and like other people respond like, "Oh, that sucks. I'm not going to see it now." Like it's that yeah. that's power. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of unfortunate because Michael Keaton brings up a good point. Like, dude, it takes a lot of work and it's a lot of effort, and you might not like it, maybe because you just don't understand it. And yes, I do give him that credit, but at the same time, some things I think are just you know okay movies. But I thought that was well, really course. nice I juxtaposition mean, it, just because too. someone works really hard at something doesn't mean you have to like it. But at the same time, it doesn't mean you have to kind of incite incident over said fact, which is certainly what she, what the critic in the film was trying to do or wanted to do. She didn't end up doing. She ended up being the exact opposite of what she said she was going to do. Yeah. The great news is there's always money in the banana stand. There's. <laughs> You mentioned Galifianakis, and I just want to say, not only does he look great, by the way, he's like super, like he's really done stuff with his image, apparently, to kind of trim trim it down. But he makes a role that looks very kind of easy and thankless, like into something that's just really strong and well, like it's not, that's the kind of thing what we're talking about, where it's, it might seem easy enough to just be like exacerbated lawyer guy, but at the same time, he is playing that part. He does it well. Like he did a good job. He does do it very well. And there are times where I thought that he was, um, he was getting so into it that he was forgetting some of his lines because he had to like redo a couple of them on on the screen there. But I was like, "This is great! You're just, you're getting so angry so that, about it." That's the acting to make it look like that, you don't like cause that. No he's one, like super frustrated. And well, because else. I mean, you're, it's this world you existed where it's like if you have lines, you should just know how to say them. People don't act that way in real life. People don't know how to talk all the time. They don't know right. how to have flowery yeah. dialogue every step. Which of I thing. enjoyed. So let me ask you guys something. This is something that I was talking about with somebody else who who saw the movie. They were saying that it's it's an interesting thing for Michael Keaton to be on the screen because what you're basically seeing is the two versions. You're seeing the real life version, which is things that are happening that you know we perceive as going on, like the cab scene. You know, he's actually using a cab to get around. Yeah. And then you're also seeing Michael Keaton's perspective on the screen, like at simultaneously, but with that with seamlessly as well. So you're seeing things that Michael Keaton is understanding, like. Yeah, the way we get, that he we get his view of the world room. and we get our view of the world. Right. So the way that he destroys his room, it's like uh, he clearly has destroyed it using his own hands. But on the screen, we're watching him use telekinetic powers to like destroy everything. Yeah. Um, which I thought was an interesting concept, but I'd like to hear what you guys maybe think about that. Well, that scene where he's destroyed, specifically that scene where he's destroying his office, like you see him obviously using the telekinetic powers, then it pans over to Zach Galifianakis at one point when he walks in. 
and you pan back to Michael Keaton, and he's using his hands to destroy his, you know, his, his office, his workspace. Yeah, it's like, well, that's because he picks up like the printer or something like that. Well, yeah, but I mean, I'm saying if Zach, Gal- if you didn't have Zach Galifianakis there, and it and it kept panning on him, you'd probably continue seeing it using telekinesis to do these things. Yeah. But now that but now the movie's shifted your perspective to what he sees, and you're seeing him using his hands to break stuff apart. Yeah, and I think uh, I think that was uh, a better part of of that. What what they're trying to do there with the alter ego Birdman with the magical realism. Um, if I was to single out kind of a, a difficult part of the movie, I would say that uh, there were a few times late in the movie I feel like where they used the the Birdman persona that things that maybe got a little too loose or a little bit could have been trimmed down a little bit. I don't know. Um, but that that I think the early on though it, it's kind of great to to kind of set the stage for what you know we're presented a pretty confident actor, but then we get the Birdman part on the side, kind of letting us know that this guy's got a lot of doubts in his mind. The trickiest part I'd say is pulling off that that really early scene where the the actor before Mike Shiner comes in. The, gets hit in the head with a light. And yeah, so, I, like, are you supposed to understand that he rig it? Like, did he did rig and rig it? Or did, uh, <laughs> so mean, I had a lot of questions about that scene too because um, I was like, wow, that's that's really convenient. Like, it hit him perfectly there, like in an, in almost in a magically convenient way. And, it's, obviously, uh, it's obviously something he wanted to happen. Exactly. And given that the movie's presenting us with the fact that these things are happening in can be rationally explained does that mean that Regan actually rigged that to happen or did he actually just hit him and then we saw what we wanted or what he wanted us to see well the way they talk i mean the way the other characters talk about it it is certainly like it's a thing that he can pull a lawsuit on because a thing hit him like negligence on set or whatever you want like it yeah it doesn't it's not it's not as if like we're not seeing like like they're not not showing us that michael keaton actually just attacked this person i don't think that's the case I agree uh, for that scene, but then there's some other scenes which, again, my friend brought up, and I was like, "Yeah, that's it. That's interesting." Um, the other thing, this one, this one's kind of wild, and let me know what you guys think. I was thinking, I was like, oh, "I wonder if this is if Michael Keaton was playing a human, and he actually did have superpowers, like he himself, <laughs> like you know, like he. It's like it's, it's the superhero movie um, where he just wants to be like this normal dude. He's playing this actor." But in reality, like he's fighting with himself because he hears these voices that are really him. He's like he's really he really is Birdman, even though he's played him on the screen. He actually has these powers, and thus at the end when he's uh, doing something, jumping out of a window. We don't know what he's doing. He's doing something. Yeah. yeah, he's doing something. But then you're like, oh, he actually is a superhuman, and his daughter is like, oh yeah, that that's the dad that I know. I don't know, I and mean, that one. Was, that one was more of a wild theory. But well, that obviously brings us to the ending, um, as far as kind of how to interpret that goes. And uh, John, do you have any kind of thoughts on? Uh, I thought they left it open ended. I guess she does look up, but I, I still and laughs. I still wondered if he died. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I still, agree. I don't know because the way I read the entire movie was that it was cool to have the magical realism, but it showed the schism of reality that was going to break him eventually, and I just felt like he realized that he wasn't going to be able to live up to the the first performance. And so I, I don't know. I kind of feel like he probably, she probably, she might've still seen him like ascend into heaven or something, but I, 
I tend to skew more toward the fact to toward the fact that when all those things were happening, like he was on the edge of like jumping off the building, for example, or um that that actually that the magical realism was kind of a way to cover up kind of the the tragedy. Mm-hmm. And and I think that might have happened kind of at the end too. Here's so the, here's I, I I think you I, I think the best way to interpret the movie is to view both ways where where you can yeah like people can kind of see the the magicalness of the Birdman aspect and but also the fact that yeah like he probably jumped out the building or you know is going insane. Here's here's the thing about and we because we get to be able to you know talk openly about things yeah. in, like spoiler zone or whatever and yes obviously the film is ambiguous. And obviously there are different opinions to walk away with it, and obviously Inuritu has probably his own understanding of how the ending works. I choose to think it's very optimistic. Um, I choose to think that it's... I, I don't believe that he committed suicide. I believe that while we're getting, for the first time, a perspective of another character seeing the magical realism take place in the form of Emma Stone's character, we haven't talked about very much, but I think she's very good in this movie. Um, I, I think that whatever she's seeing, it's another example of Michael Keaton having done something where he's gotten to a situation where others can see that we don't know how he's necessarily got there. Like when he ascends to the top of that building in that other scene, for example, yeah, he's done something that is making his daughter see something that she wants to see in her father, that she's not seeing a tragedy. She's not seeing his bodies displayed somewhere. He's not seeing something horrific that's happened. She's seeing something that's showing how his dad is sword. Um, and yes, pun intended because he is a bird man or whatnot. But I mean, the, the whole end of that movie, and I mean, again, there's lots of ways to take it, but the whole, I, I see that end of the movie, and you see him shoot himself, and I feel like if, he, wa- if he wanted to shoot himself and die, I feel like he would have done that. Yeah. I, I don't think he botched anything, and I, I take away that, like, upon getting past that and getting to this place where he's recovering, it's not as if it, it might have, at some, like, earlier on in this story, and even in his life, and getting to the point where he's going to make a play, it might have been about him being able to reach out and grasp at something that might bring him back into like huge fame and have all the all the options he wants in the world as far as films and whatnot go. But by the end of this film, I I'm choosing to believe that he's past that and more just accepting his place, more accepting that he can. He now is he feels like he is in control. He still sees this Birdman, but he's more confident about what he can do with that power and that whatever it is that he did after he opened the window and looked at and saw the birds and smiled. Whatever that next step was, it wasn't something that was a bad thing. It was something that was that could be represented in a good way based on what whatever Stone sees and what how I'm taking the film at that point. Yeah. So I've got two takes on it. One of them, my initial take and my take was like, he did it. Like he, he's flying. Um, the second Which one I is, mean, that's that's like the easiest way to say it. He's flying. He's soaring. He like did that's, it. that's I mean that's that's like, that's, he, that's the perfect. one word way for me to explain what I think. He soars. Yeah. The other one was uh, my my uh, my colleague's uh, perspective of like, oh, you know what? Again, it's a, it's a mesh of of what we are seeing, and then also what he wants his daughter to see, kind of thing. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting take. That would that would kind of I understand that perspective as well. Meaning he wants his daughter to see him as this uh, larger than life being who is soaring. And I was like, oh, that's that's an interesting take on it. And I. I am now more confused, and I, not not in a bad way, but just like there's so much to to interpret, and there's many different avenues that you can take. Um, so I appreciate that a lot about it. And again, it's provided very fruitful discussions. Well, what I like about, I mean, what 
not that, not that I'm, you know, I'm not that I'm right and I disagree with you guys, but what I like about yeah. the way I'm interpreting it is that I feel like Inaritu and his screenwriters, there's other, there's like three other screenwriters on this film, mm-hmm. the way they've structured it, where you have these kind of, these different preview nights, they feel like trials. They feel like they're testing him in his own yeah. way. Like they, they, you have these, each trial is a different, and that, you know, they can probably explain this much better than I can, but the way I can see it is like they have these different preview nights that show him going through these different, like, these different challenges along his journey, and he finally reaches that point where he's successfully passed it. Like, and I, and I, it's the structure of the film that kind of makes me intrigued and that even more so in that way and helps me reconcile what I feel about the ending. Okay, so this is probably a good time to bring up my most devil's advocate type of thing for this movie, sure. which is, do you think, did at any point you kind of think this movie dragged a little bit or could have ended in a few different other spots? See, I, I, don't, I don't think so. And I, I, I understand maybe that the momentum of the film in terms of like it's editing and the way it's being presented to you can slow down. But I wouldn't say that I was any less intrigued by where the film was going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what's funny is that I think, and I'm trying to think exactly when I did start getting, it started losing me just a little bit. And cause I do think it regained me obviously when he shot his nose off and that, that scene, but well, it seems like, I cause there's like the, the whole the time square. Momentum, there's a whole like Times Square uh, scene wondered, after that. Right, I was going to say peak momentum's at the Times Square, and I and, so, and I sometimes wonder if it would have been a better movie to me if he had a shot his nose off at the Times Square. If that hadn't been dress, but that had been the first performance. I, I mean, kind of wonder. That'd be ridiculous if the first performance the, if, him. if chopping things up a little bit and not having another really long and meandering magical realism thing happen in between those two would have maybe kept the movie's momentum. I know that maybe we're supposed to get meditative, but for me, I think if I, I liked the, 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 you know, the free jazz syncopation part of the movie more than when it kind of hits that flat line a little bit where he is getting a little more meditative at the end. And I think they sort of yeah. still had the, the end scene after the Times Square part, but I, I do kind of wonder if you, if they kept going a little too far. Um, somebody pointed out to me also that, that uh, the, the or another person I'd read who thought it lost a little of its momentum kind of noted too that it's it's when we lose all the other characters too like and we're only with Keaton. I think Keaton's a great performance in this movie, but I do think that a lot of the parts I like the most are, are using the ensemble. So I think that that kind of in between the last dress rehearsal and the and the opening night. Uh, the, I would say I have only one complaint in the movie that would be that 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 I would have just preferred to keep the momentum from uh, the the last uh, what you call it the the last practice. Mm-hmm. I mean that biggest section does come after that Times Square scene, after that performance, um, and after the when he runs into the um, to the the, um, the the theater critic. It's that point that you get him kind of walking through the streets, and he gets he gets drunk, and he falls asleep on the sidewalk, and then he hallucinates, and he flies. Like all of that is that's that's the whole kind of like singled out Keaton-ness <laughs> portion of the film before it gets back into the theater and back into the last performance and whatnot. It is, and I, I, I certainly, I could see where some would come from on that. It's just, no, it didn't do anything for me to kind of distract me from or keep me out of the film or what. It, I mean, it obviously has that kind of like, here's the giant bird man scene of giant action happening and whatnot. Keep the people what they want, all that nonsense that the bird yeah. man character is whispering to him. But, uh, 
Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I, I just never. And the movie's what, like two hours? It never. I, I I was never taken out of the film based off like looking at my watch or anything like that. It never kind of felt that way for me. So to answer your question, I wasn't bored either, and I think that it's primarily because I wanted to find out what was going to happen next. So I was kind of just going along for the ride, and uh, I I enjoyed it. No, I mean I I don't think it was. It gets bad in that point. Or no, anything. I don't think you're saying that. No, yeah, I, and I get what I you're think saying. Some of the tools in the toolbox, especially some of the bird band stuff for me, um, I do, I mean, obviously one of the, the hallmarks of the trailers for this were when the meteors are coming down and stuff. So that part's good, but but I did, I guess I did tire a little bit of the, the back talking with himself. Because yeah. um, we kind of had those scenes already illustrated, and I know we want to keep illustrating them, but I did think that that some of those points that already been made, maybe that's just the the journalist editor, you know, in me. But I, I I did seem like there was almost like three three maybe even four endings of the movie until, and then I was always like, is that the ending? And then it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I, I never felt like I was faked out by an ending. I felt like it reached a natural point of conclusion. Like, I felt like I would have been upset if it ended, like, with him shooting himself, or... I, would, I, I don't would even know where the other endings would be, actually. I think, like, in terms of, like, movie just stops. I, he jumps off the I, roof, and the guy, and that's it. Conversely, yeah. I will say that, like, I mean, the Times Square thing, like, the movie up and, and hitting that Times Square with, like, the crazy drumming, and, like, there's there's rarely been a movie this year that's had that amount of energy and forward momentum at a point in, yeah. the, in the movie. <laughs> Especially for a film that's essentially a dark comedy, I guess is the best way to put it. Because I was, yeah, I was actually going to bring up the comedic elements of it. Because um, I do think it's funny and in terms of like like I and we I keep saying I want to talk more about Edward Norton, but I think he's very I mean he's very funny in this movie. <laughs> uh, oh, I mean one of the most inappropriate parts of the movie is hilarious where yeah. he's. He He's in bed with Naomi Watts. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh... But, like, just the way he presents himself, the way he presents scenes, that they're, like, really well acted. But they are, they have, like, I mean, he and Michael Keaton get into a slap fight on the, like, not a fight, <laughs> a slap fight on the floor of, like, a room. <laughs> like, there's these things like that throughout that just are right, and I think very it, entertaining in a fun sort of way. Right. I think it, again, proves that usually the best uh, theater slash cinema art. Are, are the things that find light, dark, and, and everything in between and can and filter through those very quickly. And, and I think this movie kind of proves that, where it's something gets the audience laughing, but there's also the tragic comedy part to it in the background of a lot of this stuff, too. That's the theater life. And it knows, how to, it knows, how, to, it knows how to bend those things, too. Like, you have that scene before the slap fight where Michael Keaton... Is coming after Edward Norton yeah. because of this interview he gave, where he basically stole elements of his own story, and then like King claims, "Well, you didn't know me, and my father was a drunk," and he turns that around on him because he's lying to him and he's acting at him, and it's, it's like, just, yeah, I can be a good actor too. It's just fun, <laughs> fun little stuff like that. And there's like yeah. funny bits that Michael Keaton has like written for him, where he's talking to uh, his wife or his daughter at one point after one of the shows, and he's like, it's "Like, there's like this tiny guy with a hammer just hitting my balls," and it's like, "Did you say something?" I'm broke. I'm not sleeping, like, you know, at all. And uh, this play kind of starting to feel like a miniature deformed version of myself that just keeps following me around and, like, hitting me in the balls with a, like a tiny little hammer. I'm sorry, what was the question? The other part is when he's destroying the room and Zach Alphonsus comes in, he's like, 
hey, there's just really funny beats to this, mm-hmm. uh, which I enjoyed a lot. It is a dark comedy, but I I don't know if it's like crazy dark. It's no, because I don't really feel I didn't feel it. bad after watching this. I felt again based on my understanding of the my take on the ending, I felt fairly uplifted by. It. But even in in still watching the movie throughout, I never felt too like down about what was going on i felt bad for characters i felt bad like when emma stone just basically talks out michael keaton with her whole rant on him that made me feel bad for michael keaton's character even when he had that attack on the theater critic the the back and yeah. forth between them there's moments where you certainly you don't feel the brightest but at the same time yeah. I, I was jazzed walking out of the theater beyond just the fact that i saw a great movie but because i felt like it emotion it got me to emotionally a, a good point and again, the whole entire notion of just being relevant, I think that's one of the things that it was just revolving all the time. Because she, Emma Stone just tears out Michael Keaton's art, and she's like, dude, you're never going to be relevant. Like, nobody is, because we're just here for a certain period of time, and nobody's going to remember you. And what I what I really love about that scene is the second she's done talking, her face collapses, because she realizes how she horrible realizes. of a thing that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, regardless of, like, of just her saying that to her father, no less. Yeah. Face it, Dad, you are not doing this for the sake of art. You are doing this because you want to feel relevant again. Well, guess what? There is an entire world out there where people fight to be relevant every single day, and you act like it doesn't exist. Things are happening in a place that you ignore, a place that, by the way, has already forgotten about you. I mean, who the fuck are you? You hate bloggers. You mock Twitter. You don't even have a Facebook page. You're the one who doesn't exist. You're doing this because you're scared to death, like the rest of us, that you don't matter. And you know what? You're right. You don't. It's not important, okay? You're not important. Get used to it. And I, I love also the follow-up scenes with her and Edward Norton where she's just saying, yeah, like, he was just never there. And he tried to buy me stuff to make up for it. He's like, so, yeah, there's really nothing wrong with you. Like, you're, I, just, you're just a mean person. What I like about those scenes a lot is that Edward Norton, the way he plays it, reminds me a lot of 25th Hour, which I tend to consider my favorite Edward Norton performance. Um, and that it really reminded me of that when I was watching him in those scenes, of him kind of playing it very down-to-earth in the way that he played it with, like, Rosario Dawson or Philip Seymour Hoffman in that film, just the kind of dialing back everything about – and especially in this film where he's playing such a character – and then he able, he's able to have these kind of self-reflective moments where he can be open and honest with somebody. Anything else about Birdman? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll, I'll say this. I think the la- very last shot of this movie of Emma Stone is beautiful. I love that shot a lot. Well, you she's know. they do something with her through the camera. Like, she is almost like an alien presence. Well, something. yeah, the way she gets, she, I mean, she gets anime eyes, essentially. Like, she gets... Your eyes get super wide, and just I—it's a—I love that shot. I love that kind of slow reveal of her reaction to something, whatever that may be. Mm-hmm. So, with all that in mind, um, I guess we can wrap up our talk about Birdman. I feel like we'd all say go see this movie in the theater. I think that's yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah I would absolutely. say this is a movie that you should really see in the theater because of the directing style, because of the visual flair. Uh, I think it's much better to have a giant screen where you're kind of immersed into it rather than on your couch kind of looking at a smaller one especially and hopefully it's won't a... get audio too oh yeah that's a great exactly yeah. You can, yeah. that surround sound and really feel the the score i, I yeah. agree with you john that yeah lounging and kind of occasionally looking at it doesn't help because the movie is such a 
a technical accomplishment in terms of the camp. Like if you didn't really, if you're only half paying attention, which I never want people to do with movies, <laughs> if you're like, you might not see how amazing this film is in terms of its construction and seeing these, you know, these unbroken shots. I mean, regardless of where the edits may be, there are still good lengthy periods of time where you just, there aren't any edits at all. You're just characters that are moving constantly and using pages and pages of dialogue. It's really impressive. And it's kind of nice to recommend somebody go see a movie in theater for its theater, in theater, you know, qualities that isn't mm-hmm. a gravity or a, you know, giant action flick or something like this, that we, there actually are compelling ways to direct and, and, and visually show a movie Definitely. that, that is, is such on a smaller scale. Definitely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that's it. Let's move on. Good talk, guys. <laughs> let's move on to movie callback. Callback, callback, callback. Um, we've, We've made allusions to some things, but um, is there any uh, films that you guys thought of during or after said movie that reminded you of Birdman, Abe? Yeah. Uh, Chef. Um, mm, yeah. Whiplash. Tales from the Crypt. <laughs> and then uh, Wes Anderson movies. And I bring that up because there's it's not as static as Wes Anderson movies in terms of um, you know shots for scenes. But the way the characters kind of pop in just very naturally in Birdman... It kind of reminds me of uh, the way that Wes Anderson kind of pops people in, but then he holds it for a little bit longer than this movie does. John? Uh, I mean, I could do the obvious ones would just be like uh, Children of Men uh, and, and and True Detective, like, mm-hmm. and just those kind of astounding long takes, like, you immediately. <laughs> yeah. You no, know, you're just like, where, where is the, when are they going to end? When are they going to cut? <laughs> It's just like it's and yeah, no, and obviously those are for not not subject matter, but but style. <laughs> Michael Keaton's a detective in this one, guys. He's finding the Yellow King. I would tell, I would watch the second season of. I'm going to watch it regardless. If Michael Keaton was cast in True Detective, like yes, <laughs> It'd be amazing. Maybe season three. Um, that's with Shaq and Charles Barkley. That's, that's a TNT joke. <laughs> Boom. Um, <laughs> I mentioned Rope earlier, which is obvious in terms of kind of one long take movie. The films you mentioned, uh, I would agree with. Um, Punch Drunk Love, I thought of. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I was trying to think of who uses a visual palette like that because it's a really weird color scheme. Yes. And I would say, yeah, PTA, Punch Drunk Love is in particular. I think he does a. There's some similar stuff going on there. 25th Hour, I mentioned. I saw the movie the second time with a friend of the show, uh, Adam Gentry, and um, he mentioned. Hey, G- he mentioned to me uh, John Cassavetes' film Opening Night, which makes a lot of sense. There's a that, that movie has a very similar kind of story structure to it. It's not necessarily the the same in terms of what it's trying to do and even how it's made, but yeah, I, I can certainly see that. So I, yeah, Opening Night was another one that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, with all that in mind, let's uh, let's move on now. That was movie callback. Callback, callback, callback. Let's get to our sponsor for the week. Obviously, Audible is where you can help us out. If you go to audibletrial.com slash now podcast, you can download a free audiobook there and, you know, give us a little credit. Um, it would be wonderful to do. There's a ton of options to choose from. I had nothing in particular to recommend, so it's just like, who writes plays that are turned into movies? And I thought, David Mamet does, and so I saw Glengarry Glenn Ross is on audibletrial.com oh, wow. slash yeah. now podcast, and that's a good one. Uh, but you can go there, you can download that or anything else you want. You can check out their service. If you don't like it, you can get rid of it, but you get to keep that book that you downloaded for free. So be a winner. Read or listen. AudibleTrial.com slash OutNowPodcast. Once you're done reading or listening to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, watch the movie and 
You'll be also impressed. Fantastic movie. Yeah. Let's move on now. Let's get down to feedback. Feedback, feedback, feedback! This is where we go over our various questions and answers to the Facebook uh, responses we received on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash podcast. And uh, with that, Abe, why don't you start this one off? First question we asked everybody was, what's your favorite Michael Keaton role? Tammy writes, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. He's going to appear soon. Liz writes, Birdman Forever, <laughs> which might be a good play on stuff. <laughs> also, I think that was the name of your article. Yeah, that was the name of my review, yes, Birdman Forever. <laughs> uh, Yvonne writes, Beetlejuice. William writes, Batman. Is there really a question here? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Friend of the show, Will, uh, Julia Harrison writes Night Shift. Good choice. Uh, Jason writes Beetlejuice or Batman. Taryn writes Mr. Mom. Philip writes Batman. Honorable mention to Johnny Jandersley. Lawrence writes My Life. And Isaac writes Mr. Mom. Duh. Yeah. Um, I mean, Clean and Sober is a very good film that he was in uh, before he was Batman. It was the kind of like, look how great of an actor I am when I'm not being comedic guy, which is what Michael Keaton was pretty much before Batman happened. You know, it's not bad. What? Multiplicity. No, it is. Um, <laughs> oh, oh. It's better than Jack Frost. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, he's great in the other guys. I mean, he's really good in that movie. Um, there's a movie called The Merry Gentleman he did that I really like, that he was his directorial debut as well, where he plays this, he plays a hit, a, he plays a depressed hitman. Mm. And um, it's him and uh, Kelly, Kelly McDonald. From a Boardwalk Empire and, tra- and Train Spotting, among other things, and Brave, and, and Brave, yes. Yeah. Um, but that, I mean, I, I really like him in that role. But I, I mean, Michael Keaton, again, I've always thought he's a solid actor. It's you know, it's nice to see him now in a movie like Birdman. But I mean, uh, he's never not been good in things. I would say movies he's chosen, you know, post Batman might not have always worked out to the best. But I think he's just he's a you know he's a terrific person as far as acting goes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, when. Uh... Batman Returns is the best non-Christopher Nolan Batman, right? I tend to it. <laughs> I look at Batman Returns as a better film uh, than the first Batman, but Batman means more to me. The Burton's Batman. Mm. I'll put it that way. I see what you mean. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely, I mean, I recognize it as a better film overall. It's a terrible Batman movie, but it's a great movie. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Max Shrek, you don't love him? I, 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 Christopher Walken's amazing in that movie. No, it's just more of like, remember when Batman just, like, kills people in Batman Returns? Yeah, that's not a good Batman movie, but anyway. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. Next question we have. Hey, what are some of your favorite films about actors slash performers? Mike Jones has Man on the Moon, which, of course, is Andy Kaufman, Jim Carrey in that movie. Great performance in that film. Uh, David has Chaplin with Robert Downey Jr., Brandon has Swingers, which is great. It's all about actors struggling in L.A. Um, Justin has Tropic Thunder. Anish has All About Eve, The Red Shoes, and Black Swan. Nice combo there with The Red Shoes and Black Swan. Uh, Jim Dietz has Fanny and Alexander, King of Comedy, which I believe is his favorite Scorsese film, Elvis, the John Carpenter film, and My Favorite Year. I think Joe missed the point of this question. Oh, no, no, never mind. Uh, I'm thinking of a different question. Uh, Bronson with Tom Hardy, which is interesting because he has this kind of theater presence that's more of an inner monologue being voiced used as narration but presented in this theater aspect which is interesting. Bronson's a great movie by the way with Tom Hardy and I believe yeah, that is on Tom Hardy, yeah. uh, I think it's still on yeah I think it's still on streaming yeah and that's I mean that's that's the movie I hold up it's like this is why I love Tom Hardy because this performance is amazing uh Philip has an adventure in space time the life aquatic with Steve Zissou and Gladiator <laughs> 
okay. I can, I see where he's coming from on this. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> the next question we asked is, what are your favorite films with offbeat or non-traditional type scores and music? Tyler writes, would a lack of score count? Yeah. I mean, I, I, would I, count. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> depends uh, on the movie, I guess. It depends, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, there's never been a... Have you, did you hear about the say, by the way, that Gravity's coming out with a with no score? There's a the, there's like a Blu-ray coming out, and there's going to have a version of it that has no score whatsoever. No, to yeah. make it even more uh, isolated and, and quiet, I suppose. I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly curious. I don't know I if the movie... I'm curious to see what that would be like, because yeah. I like the score toward the end where she... I mean, it's, the dude. It's, it's an Oscar-winning score, so it's like, yeah, I, mean, it's a, I really like that, so I have that score. But I have, yeah, I mean, it's it's not it's not like The Mist, where like, I'll only watch the black and white version. I won't only watch Gravity without the score, but at the same time, I am curious to see what it's like. So. Uh, maybe they're allowing you to be creative and just having no score so you can put in whatever score you want. Well, yeah, I'm definitely going to play the Birdman soundtrack, but I'm just saying. <laughs> what I say in the movie. Amazing. Um, anyway, Adam writes Little Miss Sunshine. Jason writes to the Big Lebowski, and finally Philip writes only lovers left alive, No Country for Old Men, and Scott Pilgrim. No Country for Old Men. I mean, honestly, I I appreciate your guys' answers. I feel like a lot of these movies they kind of have the score that makes sense. But yeah, I guess in terms of offbeats, that's a good way to put it, which is why. I Obviously, answer. we've had a recent example of a crazy score, which would be Gone Girl. Gone Girl is a good example, yeah. yeah. Um, I th- I think Nightcrawler has a very offbeat score given the mind. By the way, John, did you see Nightcrawler? Uh, I haven't. See I, that movie. That's a movie to see. It's in another. Theater. It's another interesting movie that you get a lot from. That's a great. It looks intriguing. I don't. I don't know if I'll catch it in theaters, but I'll definitely catch it on Redbox. I think. I mean, the visuals and score in that film make it work for catching in theater. Regardless, uh, Philip said, "No Country for Old Men," which I. I think that's a great answer because that movie. There's almost no score, but it's there, and there's some scenes of tension where you don't really realize that there is score, but there is, and I think that's very interesting. Let's see, next question we have. Favorite film about making a comeback? Uh, Matt Goodman has, most recently, Birdman. Yeah. Uh, Joe has The Natural. Julia W.D. Harrison has Major League. Maxwell Haddad has Home Alone 3, Mars in Charge. <laughs> Tammy has The Fighter. Adam has The Pursuit of Happiness. Justin has Anchorman, The Legend of Randy. <laughs> Christopher has Backdoor Sluts 3. Oh, Comeback, I misread. All serious, though, for me, The Fighter. Uh, Jason has Rocky Balboa. Jose has The Incredibles. It's a good answer. I like that one. I didn't think about that. Uh, Philip has The Natural, Honorable Mention to Pacific Rim, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And Mike Jones has Rocky Three. So that one was pretty. Wait, oh, is that the one where Apollo gets killed? No, that's four. Three is where he oh. fights Mr. T, but Mr. it's because T. but it's because Rocky becomes such a publicity a celebrity he doesn't fight and then he has yeah. to get his you know get his groove back because Mr. T is all after him and whatnot. I love how Mr. T like is talking to his wife like, hey, if you want to be with like with a real man? Oh, I hate that me. scene. That frustrates me because like, don't make fun of Ro- don't make don't make fun of Adrian. Don't get her into this. He hasn't done anything to you. <laughs> what did she ever do to you? So now we have questions. Um, that people were asking us, and this one is this is a fun one because this is a callback. This will call back to one of our earliest episodes, Dave. Justin has a long thing to say. He says, "What's with the dislike of planes and planes two movies and Cars two? Both planes got nearly all the, phys- the physics correct and were very enjoyable to watch. While I admit I love aircraft and was in the Air Force, but kids love them. Isn't that what's the, the point? I have seen Cars two over a hundred times. I have a four year old and he loves it. If movie that direct to a specific audience works if it's attending if it's attended." Isn't that a win? Cars 2 grossed 551 worldwide, and Planes and Planes 2 made a combined 300 mil. Isn't that a win? 
a lot to unpack there. I will yes. start off by saying Cars 2. Abe and I like Cars 2. I, I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Abe and I, so, are, we're fans. Of, we're, we're among the minority because that, yeah, it wasn't well reviewed. Justin, you're, you're, you're among friends with Cars 2 here. I, I, it's not a movie that I've seen a lot because I don't have kids, and Abe doesn't have kids either that he knows of. And so, I mean, it's uh, a... <laughs> yeah, like, oh, you just Aaron, don't out me out like that, dude. Really like salacious backstory, which is not there. <laughs> but, uh, One of the best things about Abe doing on his spare time that he might yeah. One of the best things about Cars 2 that I enjoyed the most is that you get to see how these cars are really, really in the environment. Like exactly, they're, yeah. They're they're not just like, oh, yeah, there's like a car, and you don't really see anything outside of Radiator Springs, per se, So uh, besides like a racetrack. So it, it was kind of interesting to see that the entire world is made up of cars. They live in apartments. They live in like five five-story condos and whatever else. It was, you know, it just built more of a world. Uh, that was, that's exactly the reason that, yeah, that's why I'm sure that's what we said on that podcast, which I think it's like episode 19 or something like that. I think it's, um, I think it, it, it blows up the world in a way where cars left me questioning everything. Cars 2 left me intrigued by, oh, so, th- okay, all right. Like, I still don't have answers for a lot of these things. Like, where did they come from? But like, at the same time, it's, a, and it's also a spy movie. It's like, and it maybe cool. and it somehow and it somehow made me not irritated by Larry the Cable Guy. Those are all wins. <laughs> those, are, those are good things to me. Now uh, planes and planes two I haven't seen, so I can't really speak to them. I have only seen Planes Fire and Rescue, the second one. And what I what I understand about about these planes movies is that, is that they are for kids. Like they're completely for kids, and it's fair to say that kids deserve better movies as well. Um, it's not as if there's, it's impossible to make movies that are for kids that can't also be recognized as great films. At the same time, Planes and Planes 2, they're too inoffensive for me to really care about how good of a film they are for me to not recommend to a child that wants to see them, if that makes sense to you. Um, it's, they're what they are. I wouldn't say they're great, but I didn't feel, I, I wasn't like, I wasn't like um, crossing my arms and saying, "Well, this is terrible and doesn't deserve any kind of love." I haven't again. I haven't seen the first planes. I've only seen the second planes, and it's like there are things about it that irked me, but at the same time, I wouldn't turn children away from seeing this colorful adventure about a plane. So, yeah. Um, as far as the box office goes, Cars Two, um, five fifty one. Yes, it's good because five hundred fifty one million dollars is more than I have. <laughs> so, and it's probably you know it probably doubled the budget and made its marketing back. And cars, the reason there is a Cars two and will be a Cars three is because it sells the most toys. Um, that's, that's and there's that's, a Cars land over at Disneyland. Uh, again, it's 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 the merchandising. That's what makes these movies merchandising. Exactly, merchandising. Cars the flamethrower is amazing. Yes. Uh, planes and planes two, on the other hand, the first one did well for what was supposed to be a direct to video film. It did well, and especially worldwide. Planes two was a bit more of a disappointment. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily say those are wins. There's so much we're unpacking about the Cars and Planes movies, by the way, in this question. But thank you for this question, Justin. This is a good one. Um, so, yeah, are they successful? Sure. Did they blow the roof off of things? Not necessarily. Were they received critically all that well? Not necessarily. Do kids enjoy them? Yes. And if kids enjoy them, that's, that's not that's not going to taint the rest of their life. There's movies that we loved as kids that doesn't mean that didn't shape who we are, make us think differently about movies or whatnot in terms of like how to respect something. But it's, you know, it's kids. It's kids. It's movies for kids. <laughs> yeah, and again, yes, that is a win. If the kids like it, yeah, it's a win. The next question. Next question from Manish is, what would be your go-to song for a Jimmy Fallon lip, uh, lip-sync battle? John. Manish, you are... Uh, 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 that was a great question, because we often think about that a lot. John, John what's your go-to lip-sync battle song? 
Wait, what lip sync battle song? Someone's challenging you to do a lip sync. What's your what's your song? What's your go? I'd probably go to my karaoke favorite, which has got to be "Kissed by Rose." (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Seal. (laughs) Abe, you have an answer? Carrie Underwood before he cheats, because that one is a. I think that'd be great for a lip sync battle. Mine is, of course, a tr- of course, like because people know this about me. No, they don't. I don't know. I, I don't really go up and do this very often. I do like a good karaoke session. I'll say that. Uh, mine would be uh, a Tribe Called Quest scenario. That'd be my go-to. Um, a mix of um, some complicated lyrics, the fast-pacedness, and the fact that I love myself. So the Tribe Called Quest. That's so. actually the name of my uh, my, well, my Wi-Fi. <laughs> okay. Not even kidding. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> is the password Benita Applebaum? Nope. <laughs> He's got it going on. Uh, Mike Jones asks, is there such a thing as too many comic book movies? John, I think you do think that's true. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course there's too many comic book movies, or such a thing as. I think we're dangerously close to finding that threshold. <laughs> um, but we'll find out. I You're making mo- I mean, I, I, I do at least like that Marvel is kind of stretching them more and more into genre films, so at least they don't feel like comic book movies completely. So I think that's a way it can survive. But if it was just, like, straight-up Iron Man every single time, uh, I think ever, I think the, the bubble would burst more quickly than it will. That's an interesting way to look at it. Um, I would say that I come at it as a different perspective just because of who I am. I see over 200 movies a year in theaters alone. Only? I said over. I see yeah. over two hundred. Yeah, only, yeah, only two hundred. Only two hundred, Aaron. Um, come on. And because of that, the fact that I'm gonna see maybe three or four of those movies fall into a certain category does not irk me. <laughs> doesn't that doesn't make me um, that doesn't blow me over in one certain way. And obviously, yes, the average person will see the big tentpole movies more so, and see the and those will be the movies that they go out to the theater to go and see. So I can see where that perspective comes from. Um, and if that makes people burnt out on certain categories, I would say my dad, for example, he got kind of sick of seeing superhero movies. He saw Captain America, he thought it was okay, and he's like, you know, I'm good. I don't need to see X-Men, I don't need to see <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man. It's like, I've, I've, I've got my fill for now. And I should add, uh, Dad's Movie Corner, he loves Bird- Birdman, and he loved Whiplash. You would say those are his two favorite movies of the year so far. I'm uh, a huge fan of Dad's Movie Corner, by the way. That's the end of Dad's Movie Corner. <laughs> corner, corner, corner. Um, so, <laughs> why is every segment just echo? Because <laughs> we're, we're really uncreative, John. Don't you get that? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, with that said, um, from my perspective, yes, I love talking about movies. I love seeing movies. And obviously, comic book movies seem to dominate the conversation, which is why I'm very happy Abe and I do a podcast where we can talk about all movies. All movies. I mean, we we talked about Interstellar, which is arguably one of the most anticipated films of the year last week, while now we're talking about a much smaller movie that much less people have seen uh, among the other movies that we talked about this year that kind of vary between things. So I am at a place where it doesn't bother me what type of movie I'm seeing I'm not getting overwhelmed by that because I'm just going to see another movie the next week and I'm going to talk about that movie. I mean, I just, I don't really, it's the same logic I have with like, why focus on something I didn't like when I can just move on? It's whatever. Right. I guess the counter argument is that there's only so many big movies that get made and we would like to see more original ideas made rather than everything being an adaptation, which is essentially what I a movie, a, what a comic book movie is. Which that. is the difficult point where when you get that, people don't see that or they criticize it, such as Interstellar last week, for example. Big original movie. No one's seen that before, and it gets mixed reviews. 
And then the lesson is, well, we can't do that necessarily same thing again, but we can do something like it that's maybe an adaptation or and you know put that out there. I mean, and there's a lot of ways to look at that. That's one minimal way to look at it. But I mean, yeah, it'd be great to get more original stuff. At the same time, I don't, you know, we do. We, we get a lot. We, we, we're talking about Birdman right now, and yeah, it's not as big as a movie like Interstellar or you know Captain America or something like that. But I, it's just lots of ways to look at it. And all I can say is I'm not making the movies. I'm just seeing them, and so I'm doing my part. Abe, do you get burnt out on comic book movies, or? So I'm kind of on the fence here, and I kind of agree with the with John, which is, I when they when they showed me that slate of all the Marvel movies coming out, uh, I, I was thinking, I wonder if we're gonna reach some sort of uh, critical mass and have people get grow pretty tired of it. However, the flip side of that is, if they're all pretty good, does that? I think that that nullifies the uh, the notion that that's the other thing too. It's not. I mean. We had mixed thoughts on Man of Steel, and we didn't get into DC that much. But as far as Marvel goes, even I know, John, you're not a huge fan of all the Marvel movies. But at the same time, at the very least, they're mostly entertaining films. Like, no, it's not and, like... and I've watched the Avengers trailer, Avengers 2 trailer like 20 times. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I get that. I can't wait. I, I have astronomic hopes for, uh, for Doctor Strange, but... But you know, yeah, John, that's so all that's, well and good. But how many times have you watched the Furious Seven trailer? Uh, obviously, <laughs> much, much, much more. Than yes, you. obviously. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't have friends, guys. I... <laughs> what? <laughs> it's you? Me, it's, it's me and occasionally Neil, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Joke to some person that nobody knows in this podcast. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know who Neil is either. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question. <laughs> Philip asks us, what aspect of a film is most essential for your personal enjoyment? That's a really good question. Yeah. Um, offhand, I feel like it, if I feel like I've gotten something out of it, not necessarily – because it's hard to say if it's entertaining because not all movies are entertaining. Um, but at the same time, if I get – if I come away with, a, with, with enough to, like, think about from a movie – that does it for me. I mean, that it's that can that can that's obviously there's a range of ways for something to accomplish that. Whether it's a strong performance or a, even a great score, or just it's visually intriguing or it has ideas. Like it's just giving me something to work with, giving me something that it makes me want to talk about something in a positive manner. Like that that seems like that's where it's stemming from what I like most about a film. And obviously, I'm a person that talks about films on a near hourly basis, so like it doesn't take much for me to get that. But that's why I love movies. I love being able to dissect and analyze things in that manner. Uh, two elements really stick out to me. One of them is cinematography, and the other one is a score. Uh, although the movie as a whole, I mean, obviously has to be a complete package. Um, but the reason why cinematography matters is because if there's something visually there that you haven't really seen before or something that's there that you think is very unique, um, it, it leaves an imprint on you. And score, because score can really make something or break something. And one of the scores I really go back to a lot, uh, he does this in all of his films, is uh, like an atonement. Um, what's his face? Who's the director? Joe Wright. Joe Wright, yeah. He, he mixes the scene with score, and that is phenomenal. I, I think that really provides another element of enjoyment for a film. And you know, when you do something like that, it does stick in your mind. And then you after the film has come out and the DVDs are released... Um, it's those scenes that you go back to on YouTube and you go back and just watch specifically for that. And those are, uh, what's they got to me in the most. 
John, you have a, um, something that indicates you? It's almost disappointing to say, but I think uh, as a writer, <laughs> but I, I think the thing that gets me to movies most is director aesthetic. Um, the movies I get excited for are generally uh, based off of what the director is visually kind of known for, I think. Like, I mean, a Fincher movie or... Wes Anderson. Or, or Wes Anderson, yeah. yeah. Or something where, where like, I, I kind of know what kind of cool visual thing I'm getting into. Or, like, Koran's getting to that level where it's like, oh, it's a Koran movie. Well, I know it's going to look really cool. Like, and even though it should be, like, secondary how cool something looks. I don't know. For me, movies are still a medium. I think TV's where I, where the writing is. Movies, I think it's important who's making it, who's helming it the most and what, you know, what do they do to make it interesting visually? Great. That's a good question. I like good that question. Yeah. Lot, good questions for everybody and good response from everybody. Thanks again, because we do appreciate, you know, making this an interactive show. It's fun to, you know, be able to respond and answer these questions. Yeah. Good questions from everybody. So with all that in mind, um, Abe, what uh, what time is it over here? Aaron, I believe that it might be time for some games. That was like from when you were walking through uh, Newport Beach, right? In, in your underwear? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Something right. I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> Just making sure. Got a game for you guys here. It's called What? Which Movie Made More? Okay. Yeah. Right. And these are all Michael Keaton movies, uh, which we talked about. And essentially what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be reading, reading two movies. You have to decide which one made more, and then whoever is closer will win that point. So, here we go. Toy Story 3 or Batman? Toy Story 3. John? Wait, which, the original Batman? Yeah, the 1989 Batman. Is this domestic boss boxes, by the way? This is domestic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Toy Story. Uh, I guess I gotta say Toy Story. That's a tie! You guys are both right. 415, <laughs> $415 million. Versus like 250 yeah. yeah. Yeah, Toy Story 3 was a force. What about inflation? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, inflation. We, we don't count that. Yeah. <laughs> Need for Speed Ugh. or 2014 RoboCop? Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> um, Need for Speed or RoboCop? I would, I guess I would say RoboCop. Okay. Wait, you said 2014 RoboCop. Yeah, the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, Need for Speed made more than that. It is RoboCop. No. no. 58 million to 43 million. I mean, I'm just going off of, like, video games. Oh, you games. said opening weekend? No. No, 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 no. This is a current gross. Wow. It's going yeah, video it's... game versus a versus a remake of a, of a classic. Yeah. yeah. I guess, and I, 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 for some reason, was thinking um, Speed instead of Need for Speed. Uh, no. Got it, Reeves? Michael Keaton movies, man. I was like, what is our Newworth doing? <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Multiplicity or Jack Frost? Oh. I think Jack Frost. I'm going to go kids' movie. I always go kids' movie. I'll say okay. multiplicity. It is Jack Frost. Yeah. Ooh. What was it? 34 Ooh. million for Jack Ooh. Frost. Multiplicity was 21 million. All right. The Paper or Jackie Brown? Um, I'll say I'll, I'll hope Jackie Brown. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, Jackie Brown. That is correct. Thirty-nine million, 
39.6 versus like 38.8. Yeah. The other guys were Batman Returns. That's going to be close, but it's got to be Batman. Yeah, I'm going to say Batman. And that it's probably is closer correct. than people think. So let me, let me, can I guess the numbers? Yeah. I think other guys is like, it's like a little, it's like maybe like 102 or something like that. And Batman Returns has to be like 170 something maybe. So the other guys is 119. 119, okay. And Batman Returns is 162. Okay, all right. Yeah. I, I'm surprised the other guys made uh, over 100 million. I remember I, it. I, I don't know why you're surprised. I, I did. It, was it rated R? No, PG-13, Will oh. Ferrell, Mark Wahlberg comedy. That makes money. That's what that <laughs> well, I does. I know that makes money, but I was trying to think. I thought it, yeah, no, yeah, it was, it was an R. Because it was like, look at this rated R comedy he did. And then Mr. Mom or Beetlejuice. I'll say Beetlejuice. Okay. That's it. Oh, that's tricky, though. But yeah, I'll say I'll Beetlejuice. Mr. Mom. Oof. It was Beetlejuice. Mm. No! 70, 73 million. Oh. To 64 million. Mr. Mom did pretty well. Uh, that was a funny movie, Mr. Mom. You should go see it. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, that was games there. So, Aaron, you have one more than John. You guys tied on three of them. Yes. So you win. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> did it. You did it. You know you're Michael Keaton box office. Right, well, I have to go do a different answer on the last question. If it was a tie, I would just make Ties. you guys do your Not favorite. first or like, last. Yeah, not first I... or last. <laughs> with all the with all the Birdman noises as well. <laughs> if you're not first, you're last. So those games, great. Well, with that out of the way, let's do a little out now presents what's out now. These are movies that are coming out on DVD or Blu-ray or streaming this week, and we have another host of movies here. First up, we have Twenty Two Jump Street. Yeah, go see it. That's funny. John, did you see Twenty Two Jump Street? Yeah. Did you like it? I laughed. I laughed. I thought the first one was a lot better, but I thought the second one was still funny. I agree with you completely. Agreed. Uh, Sin City, A Dame to Kill For. Eh. Yeah. I remember I was super excited about it and then did not end up seeing it in theaters, so I'll have to catch it this time around. Hmm. Uh, Into the Storm. Uh, I think that was out for like one day. and then it didn't No, it made a good number, of, good amount of money. It. Yep. That's the one where like the trailer was just a a hurricane, right? Yeah, it it it, it had legs. It made its money. Um, let's see. And so it goes. This is a Rob Reiner movie with Michael Keaton Douglas and Diane Keaton, which is no one's ever gonna remember this ever. So don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> if I stay with Chloe Grace Grace Moretz, who I thought this movie was like just out. <laughs> so, I thought it was just out too. Yeah. Didn't it come out around the same time as Fault in Our Stars or something? No, no, it was just that. It came out like in September. Oh, all their stars back in June. Oh wow, I, I'm and, off. And that movie was, you know, good and made money. <laughs> uh, let's see, The Wind Rises. Yes, go see it. And with The Wind Rises, there's also Princess Mononoke and Kiki's Delivery Service also so making Princess their Mononoke is one of my favorite Hayao Miyazaki films. I know yeah. a lot of people like uh, Spirited Away, but Princess it, Mononoke. It seems to be up in the like. It seems to be those are the two that people hold the highest. But I mean, like his original stuff, or not original, but his earlier stuff, I enjoy immensely as well. Like, like my neighbor Totoro and Kiki's Delivery Service is really funny. The American version has Phil Hartman as the cat. And and John, we saw The Wind Rises in theaters together. I know that was a while ago. That's the only time I've been to that Santa Monica theater too. Yeah. Uh, there's also Automata. This is a uh, sci-fi film with Antonio Banderas. Oh, I thought uh, I thought that was gonna get a, a wide release. I guess not. It had a limit. There's another movie that looks like it. It's called Ex Machina. 
that's coming out. But, no, it's uh, one that Antonio Banderas and the robots like learn. Well, yeah, it came out. It feel. came out. It came out for a little bit, and it was on VOD, and now it's on Blu-ray. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then going jumping back to classic time, uh, we have "It Happened One Night" debuts on Criterion Collection this week, and "It Happened One Night" um, is one of my favorite romantic comedies of all time. Uh, this one with uh, Clark Gable. And um, oh my God, what's the actress? That's <laughs> gonna book right now. <laughs> um, oh my God, like Claudia, Cla- Claudette, Claudette Colbert. Um, I was like Claudette Colbert, but it happened one night. Great aunt. Gotcha. It's a fa- it's a fantastic like screwball romantic comedy that I really love, and I'm excited to get that on Criterion. Um, also, the, uh, speaking of kind of very old movies, uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Cal- Caligari. Uh, this movie is known for being basically the first horror movie ever. And it gets a Blu-ray release this week that's been like remastered in 4K. It looks, probably looks amazing. I'm also excited to get this one. Uh, it's a silent film from like 1921, I think, or something like that. And yeah, it's uh, we talked about this on the, uh, the our 20s episode in the horror bonus podcast that we were doing earlier in October. Uh, but yeah, certainly one to check out if you haven't seen that film because just for just for the sake of seeing, because it's like wow, look how great this was back in the day. Mm. Um, so yeah, there's that. That's what's coming out. Um, so obviously the message was rent into the storm. Got it. Okay. Uh, next right. week's show. Next week we are talking about the Hunger Games colon Mockingjay comma part numerical Thank one. You. Thank you for writing <laughs> so, for for saying all of that correctly. Yeah. So yeah, the Hunger Games colon Mockingjay comma part one. Um, that is uh, the film that we're going to talk about next week. It is of course the third film in the Hunger Games franchise, which will conclude with part two next year. Um, but with that said, yeah, that's uh, that's what we're going to talk about. John, are you excited for these Hunger Games movies? I forget. I mean, I've seen them all. And actually, it's one of the few times where I saw the movie, the first movie, then read all the books. So, like, it's kind of that, like, weird conglomeration when I was, like, reading of some of the characters being the actors and some being made up in my head, which is kind of weird. But I don't know. I think they're serviceable movies, but I don't know. And I will see them all, but I'm, yeah, I mean, they're just okay. And though Abe, you were a bigger fan, you're a much bigger fan of Catching Fire than the first Hunger Games. The and... film, yeah. So the, yeah. the second, the second movie really, really kind of caught me off guard by how how much I I liked it. And I, I like was... I like the first two equally. I think they're both really solid movies. But... I will say that the third book is by far my favorite, and I think it's awesome. And I hate that and I hate that they're making it into two movies. <laughs> yeah, I that is. I mean, even I'm like still. I've been very slowly moving through that last book, and I'm like, well, all right, I guess there's another group. But like, how, I, see, I see where, where they I, cut it off. At. Yeah, I, I feel like I know where it can get cut off, but at the same time, I'm like, do we need to? All right, well. <laughs> it's all about that cash, dude. It's all about the Benjamins. I get it. Yeah. All about the Benjamin Buttons. Thanks, P. <laughs> Benjamin Buttons. <laughs> can you imagine if his face was on currency? <laughs> I can imagine because on one side it'd be older, and on the other side it'd be younger. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> All right. Okay, so last thing before we wrap up here. What should people go see now, and what do you plan to see next? John, what movie would you say people should go see now, and what do you plan to see next? I mean, I think people should go see Interstellar, and I plan on going, hopefully, still catching Whiplash before it gets out of the theater. Abe? So I also agree that you should see Interstellar, uh, yeah, preferably in IMAX, if you if you have one nearby. Um and I, I'm missing out on a lot of movies. I haven't seen John Wick, and I haven't seen Big Hero 6 yet. I've really got to catch up. Yeah, I thought you were going to see Big Hero 6 last week, like after the podcast. I was going to. Then you had to buy got, a turkey? Yes, I actually <laughs> did go buy a turkey. <laughs> okay. 
Um, yeah, I would say go see Interstellar in IMAX if you can before The Hobbit takes over all those theaters. And um, I would also see go see I would say go see Rosewater, um, just because I'm glad John Stewart made a very good movie and I'm happy that it's um, you know playing in a number enough theaters where people can actually actually go and see that. Um, what am I gonna see next? I really want to see Whiplash again just because I really loved it. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like I've seen so much recently. I, I guess I'd. I want to see. I want to see Laggies. I know that's out there somewhere. Laggies. I love, I love what, Sam Rockwell. Why does that sound familiar? Oh. Sam Rockwell and Karen Knightley and Chloe and and, and if I stay is Chloe Chris Barretts, of course. <laughs> uh, but you know Sam Rockwell does it for me. So honestly, I don't. I have no. I have like no really like the theory of everything. Like that's out, but I have no real interest in seeing it. Like it's it's around. But it's like, do I want it? I mean, it's, it's. I'm sure it's probably what it is, but I just don't care that much. <laughs> Uh, same with uh, the imitation game. That's not out yet, but the imitation game and the theory of they kind of give that me the one. Same I'm, that one I'm a little bit less interested in seeing, but I hear that it's pretty good. I, yeah, they're probably good. I just I feel like I got it already. I guess. Oh, uh, but yeah. All right. Enough pounding movies we haven't seen. Uh, go see Interstellar. I think that was the takeaway. <laughs> in IMAX. Yeah, in IMAX. Uh, yeah. Well, that said, and see John Wick. I'll say that too because I certainly recommend that one. Uh, with all that said, that's going to do it for this week's episode about now there and Abe. You can find more of my work on my personal blog, thecodezeek.com, where you can find, my written, you can find all of my written movie reviews, as well as at ysablue.com, where you can find my reviews there for Blu-rays as well as the movies. You can also find me on Twitter, at AaronsPS4. Abe? You can find more fun stuff at walrusmoose.blogspot.com and twitter.com slash walrusmoose. Hashtag Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But not just TMNT? Mm, I should have gone with that. John? <laughs> Uh, you can find, uh, actually my news writing, uh, for now, uh, the Hollywood, West Hollywood, Miracle Mile place, uh, places in, in Los Angeles at beverlypress.com. So new gig, uh, probably more relevant writing to our listeners who are here in LA too. Very cool. And, uh, yeah, you, that's, thank, thanks for that. Are you on Twitter? Did you say that? Mention? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm at Sir John Van Dyke. I don't. Don't sell it short, brah. You can put it on there. I like retweet sports things and yell at the Iowa Hawkeye football game on Saturdays. That's pretty much <laughs> that happens. Through so what life. you're saying is, if you like <laughs> Iowa football, John Van Dyke is your voice of reason. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go Hawkeyes. Nothing but reasonable on there. <laughs> You can find all the other episodes of Out Now Out There today about iTunes and at Stitcher, as well as at hhwlb.com. That is the podcast network that hosts our show, along with other shows like the Walking Dead TV podcast, which I co-host on, talking about Walking Dead Weekly, the Ichapod Gramecast, which I co-host with friends of the show Brandon and Maxwell, talking about Sleepy Hollow Weekly, and other fun shows about comics and games and cool stuff like that. You can also find our episodes over at outnow.podomatic.com, as well as soundcloud.com slash outnowpodcast. Feel free to email us your thoughts on Birdman and more at outnowpodcast at gmail.com. I'm also aware that we did have a contest going, and I have not forgotten about that. I just want to give a little more time for people to catch up if in case they haven't heard those rules yet. That was a funny joke in Kill Bill. Catch up. You can also interact with us over at facebook.com slash podcast, or you can tweet at us at twitter.com slash underscore podcast. You can, of course, tweet at us how Abe was wrong about the ketchup joke being from Pulp Fiction and not Kill Bill. Um, you can also oh. remind people that outnowpodcast.tumblr.com is a place where you can follow us as well. And feel free to use our voicemail line, 972-798-3830. You can send us an audio recording of yourself talking about something that you think we should bring up on the show or a comment on said thing. Send us an audio recording of yourself. Or use that voicemail line, 972-798-3830. That'd be fun. Yeah. So with all that said, John, uh, fun, thanks. 
you for joining us to talk about Birdman today. <laughs> you are welcome, sir. Sure. And yeah, Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank lots, you for being on. Lots of fun conversation. And until next week when we talk about the Hunger Games, colon, Mockingjay, comma, part one, uh, that's going to do it. So, until next time, so long. And goodbye. Smells like balls. <laughs>